Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you haven't already, would you open your copy of God's Word this morning to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be spending some time in this chapter. I understand um, you recently, recently slash within the last six months, have uh, gone through this book as, uh, as a church. You've been waking your, making your way through the minor prophets, um, but not like anybody can remember what happened in May. So here we are again. <laughs> And it's always good to be reminded of the truths that are in God's word. Jonah chapter 1. Let's commence our reading at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And then they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up, hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to the dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Would you pray with me, and let's ask the Lord for his help as we consider his word. Our God and our Father, we come to you this morning with your word before us. We are so mindful of our great need to hear it and to receive it by faith. And so we come to you 
admittedly, as those who are so often slow to believe and so often reluctant to obey. But Lord, even in this, we are confident of your gracious ability to grant faith, to stir our affections, to even change our wills. And so we ask, as your people, that you would send your Holy Spirit to accomplish what we cannot do for ourselves, what we cannot do for our, our spouses, for our children, and for one another. We ask simply that you would help us to receive your word by faith and love, that we would be those who lay it up in our hearts, and that it would be found being practiced in our lives. And may you receive the full glory for all the glorious fruit that you will produce by your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mistaken assumptions can be one of the most embarrassing and the most regrettable experiences of our lives. You probably know what I mean in that you assume that you are seeing clearly, that you are thinking soundly, only to discover to your shame that you are absolutely mistaken in your assumption. Simon Newcomb was one of the leading U.S. astronomers in the 19th century. He was a professor of astronomy and mathematics, and despite all of this great knowledge, he asserted that it was completely impossible for any object heavier than air to fly. Even after the Wright brothers make their historic flight, he still claimed airplanes are impractical and completely worthless. Charles Duell was a commissioner at the U.S. Patents Office who in 1899 asserted everything that can be invented has been invented. Nineteen seventy-seven, Ken Olson, he served as the CEO of the Digital Equipment Corporation, which I believe went on to be bought out by Hewlett Packard, said there is no reason that anyone would want a computer in their home, <laughs> let alone their pockets. What do I bring this up? Well, likewise, to read the book of Jonah and assume that it is a story about a fish that swallows a man is foolishly short-sighted, and a mistaken assumption. Uh, one author said that the book of Jonah is probably the best known and the least understood book in our Bible. So right out of the gate, let's save ourselves some embarrassment and get rid of this idea that the big fish in this book is meant to be under the spotlight in this narrative. At its center, this story is about God. The focus is not at all on the greatness of the fish that he sends, but it's on the, the greatness of the mercy that, that he gives. This story that's here in this short four chapters, it's filled with irony. There's all these plot twists that unfold, and all of this is recorded that we might know something more of who God is and who we are. In fact, the last verse of this book, maybe you've noticed, it actually ends with a question mark. It ends with a question that just literally hangs in the air. You might even turn the page over thinking, where's chapter 5? Because surely it doesn't end here. But the question just hangs in the air. And the question is, and should I not pity Nineveh? 
Really, as you read this book in one sitting, you find that it drives straight at us, and it forces us to ask this really important question. Who is it that deserves mercy? And who is it that deserves judgment? I think if you grasp the answer to those questions, you really, you not only understand the message of the book of Jonah, but you've really begun to lay hold of the message of the entirety of the scriptures. The book of Jonah, I would say, it just serves as a litmus test really to expose our own understanding of God's grace and God's mercy. Have you ever considered that God's mercy, ironically enough, could be the most offensive news to your ears? Maybe you've found this by experience that God's grace could actually provoke someone to anger. The reality of those two responses are are very valid, not just locked away in a book about this prophet. But we ought to be familiar with this book and this prophet because those very reactions to God's mercy and to God's grace, they still lurk within our own hearts and within our own minds. And so by being familiar with this, we are helped to understand who God is and who we are. So let's begin just by considering this first observation. Let's consider the absolute folly of our running from God. The folly of running from God. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, particularly the prophets, which most of you probably are as you've spent several months working through the minor prophets, you'll find that the book of Jonah, it begins in a pretty predictable manner, doesn't it? God calls his prophet to stand and deliver his message to a particular group of people. It's so common, in fact, that this phrase, the word of the Lord came to fill in the blank, uh, it appears over a hundred times in our Old Testament scriptures. And we're told here in verse 2 that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and he was to go to Nineveh. We're told simply that it was a great city. Nineveh certainly was a great city. It was the chief city within this region of Assyria, located just east of the Tigris Tigris River, which today would be right about uh, in Iraq, the modern-day city of Mosul. This is where Jonah was called to go. History tells us that this city, Nineveh, it was so great that the walls of the city were 100 feet high. They were so wide that three chariots could race side by side around the walls of the city, that it was so prosperous and that it was uh, so well uh, endowed that it was able to sustain up to 600,000 people within its walls by the crops and the grain that they could grow. Very important, if a siege comes against you, you say, no problem, we can sustain our people for some time. It was a great city, but it was not only great in size, Nineveh was great in wickedness. To this day, the Assyrians are known as some of the most cruel, the most sadistic people on earth. Upon capturing a city, historians would tell us that it was quite common for them to construct furniture out of the skin of those that they had just killed. It would be quite common for them to take the skulls of the slaughtered and to place them into pyramids outside of the city, championing what they had just done to those people that they had conquered. So it would be quite common 
that entire cities, entire nations would just surrender and give up without a fight to avoid enduring such atrocities. And so when the Lord says, their evil has come up before me, in verse 2, what this means is that there is no lack of evidence that stood to condemn this nation in their guilt. In passing, I think this is just another testimony from Scripture that God is holy. As we heard this morning as we were led in prayer, God is holy. And the very cultural practices, the even cultural assumptions that we might just become accustomed to, that we might even become numb to, God is revolted by. The same is true today. The wickedness that Nineveh was famous for was not beyond the sight nor the concern of God. Every evil deed, every wicked thought, every action is done before the face of God. It is not beyond his knowledge nor his sight. And so it's because of this wickedness that God calls Jonah to go and to call out against it. He is to bear testimony that the righteous judgment of God is the fitting response to all that they have done, and they must repent. God sends and calls this prophet to Nineveh. So we said the book opens just as we might expect, given the pattern of really other Old Testament prophets. But it's right here where this book takes its first plot twist. For God calls this prophet to arise and go, but what do we read in verse 3? It tells us that Jonah rose to flee. God calls him to go west to Nineveh. He goes east to Tarshish. Now stop for a minute and just really think this through. Jonah is commissioned by God to go to Nineveh. Jonah knows that this people... He knows that they are a wicked, depraved city. Jonah knows that God condemns sin and wickedness. So why is it that Jonah would run from this call? Wicked people, righteous judge, judgment coming. They're actually our enemies. And yet Jonah flees. We know why Jonah flees because he tips his hand a little bit later in the book. If you look over at chapter 4, verse 2, we get a little insight as to why Jonah runs. Jonah 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this why I said what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew something about this God. He knew something about this God who calls prophets to wicked cities. God is merciful. God is long-suffering. He's abounding in steadfast love. See, being sent by God to proclaim a message of salvation to your own covenant people, that's a privilege. 
But being sent by God to proclaim a message of mercy to your enemies? Well, that's a bit loathsome. So Jonah ran. He sought to flee, as it says, from the presence of the Lord. He sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, you might read a statement like that and think it's especially foolish, particularly if you're familiar with your Bible. Because the scriptures declare that God is not some localized God. He's not the God of the pagans that's just restrained by some geographic area where they would worship the God that supposedly ruled whatever region that they were in. As if you could just get a passport and leave and flee the presence of this God's influence and region. No, the scriptures tell us that Yahweh, he rules over the entire earth. His throne is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Jonah knows this, and yet he rises to flee. Jonah was not trying to run from the physical presence of God, but as one author said, the felt presence of God. Meaning, I want to go where this God is not prayed to, where there is no synagogue, where these people are singing his praises. I want to go where his law is not being taught. I want to go where this God is not spoken of or thought of. I will rise and flee. Jonah ran from God. And so let me ask you, are you running from God? And before you answer that question, let me explain. Maybe you're not looking to book cruise tickets to some faraway port city, but still trying to evade the very thought of God upon your conscience. Before you answer that too quickly, notice a couple of things about Jonah's running. Notice, first of all, the ease that he had in running from God. First, look how easily and how naturally the circumstances just line right up for Jonah's escape. He goes down to Joppa, and look, there is a ship setting sail for Tarshish. He checks his wallet. He has enough to pay the fare. He boards the ship. He doesn't even have to answer any prying questions. He can just go down below and take a nap. Look how easy this is. Do you know how Christians mistakenly and wrongly but often justify their sin when every circumstance just lines up beautifully? We call it providence. Look how, look how it's just all lined up. Look how everything is just fitting together. Why? Because we live in a culture where experience is authority. In such times, Christians can be in danger of seeking to discern the will of God apart from the word of God, simply resting upon the circumstances of life and daily experience. If God didn't want me to date this non-Christian woman who's sitting right here, then why is she providentially in two of my classes, and why does she laugh at all my jokes? This must be the Lord. But the book of Jonah reminds us that we must never allow ourselves to be guided by circumstance when we refuse the guidance of his word. 
Because once we just abandon the counsel of God's word, we can always, I guarantee you, always find circumstances or people or opinions or news articles to validate our decisions and bring confirmation to our well-laid plans. When you or I lay aside the counsel of God's word, brothers and sisters, we must not be surprised when we find all sorts of opportunities to fulfill those plans. Notice the ease that Jonah had in running from God. But also notice Jonah's, Jonah's ease in running from God and that he didn't have to break any laws to do this. He wasn't a fugitive illegally sneaking away across the country. He was not guilty of any crime upon the books. If a police officer were to stop him, there would have been no reason to arrest him. If you were to observe tra Jonah traveling from Joppa across to Tarshish, you would have no glaring concerns. You would just think this is a man looking to board a ship, looking to go to another town. Running from God does not always mean that you are a felon in the eyes of the state. It's possible to be running from God, disobedience to his, to his commands, and appear to be an upright citizen. This is another reminder that just because it's legal does not mean that it's moral. And just because it's illegal, it does not mean that it's immoral. Are we clear on that? Here's what I mean. Jonah's decision to board the ship and head to Tarshish was not illegal, but it was immoral. Precisely because the word of the Lord came to him and told him to go to Nineveh. In these ways, running from God was actually very easy. Running from God may appear to be easy, even compliant with the laws of the lands, but friends, that's not the final word, is it? Do not be deceived into thinking that the ease of your circumstances therefore must mean an obedient life. Because God's word and not our circumstances are the guiding authority for who we are. How easy it was for Jonah to run from the Lord. But second observation. Notice the difficulty Jonah had in obeying God. The difficulty that he had in obeying. I think we're meant to see here that forsaking God's commands isn't as complex as we might think. What exactly was Jonah's struggle with this command? I don't think it was an intellectual problem. I don't think Jonah needed some lexicon or some commentary to so go decipher this cryptic message of arise and go. It was pretty straightforward. And to be truthful, most often our struggle in obeying God is not really an intellectual one, is it? Jonah's struggle was not intellectual, but theological. His struggle is what he knew of God. 
Remember the background of chapter 4, verse 2. We know the, the war that's going on in Jonah's mind and in his will. We know his struggle. Jonah knew, if God is calling me to preach against Nineveh, God might actually have mercy on these people. So this begins to expose for us these underlying themes of sovereign grace and abundant mercy that really run throughout all four chapters. This means that the crux of Jonah's difficulty in going to Nineveh, it's not the wickedness of the Ninevites. It's actually the magnitude of God's mercy. That's what trips him up. That's what gives him pause. And see, Jonah, like some of us today, he actually began to draw lines around those that are deserving and those that are undeserving of God's grace. Certainly these people, we can give the message of grace to them. But these over here, God, I don't, I don't know that we want to tell them that there's actually forgiveness. I don't think we actually want you to be merciful to them, do we, God? And begin to categorize who belongs in which circle. And when we begin to trace those same lines around others in our own lives, we betray our very own ignorance the very definition of what God's mercy is. And so what can we say about Jonah's running from God? Simply that running from God doesn't always look like what we might imagine. Running from God isn't the stereotypical image that we might have in our brains. Running from God doesn't always look like wandering the streets with wrinkled clothes and, and matted hair and the fragrance of vomit and cheap alcohol in our breath. It might, but it seems like running from God can also look like finely pressed shirts, white smiles, and a firm handshake. It's possible to mouth his praise with your lips, but to have your heart far from him because you're running from God. It's possible to speak of Christ as being the only mediator between God and man, but still resting in your obedience as the means of your assurance before God because you're running from God. So let me ask you again, are you running from God? What is it that he's commanded you to do? Well, plainly and clearly, he has called all men, all women, to repent and to believe in him. That simply means that we agree with who God says he is, and we agree with who he says we are, and that we look to Christ as our only sufficient remedy. What that means is that he calls us to live as his disciples or his followers, and that's made clear when we're seeking to shape our lives and our thinking by his own word. We're seeking to follow after Christ. We recognize that I've actually been made in his image and my life exists to bring him glory. Therefore, I'm going to submit to his direction. That's what God has called you to do. And what I would say is that if you refuse to do this, this is the very foundation for all other forms of rebellion in our life. You could all boil them back to this. 
a refusal to repent and believe as to who God is and who I am, to live as his image bearer, and to honor him in the way that he's revealed his truth to us. There is this folly in running from God. We have to observe that. But there's something else happening in this narrative. We're not only meant to see the folly in running from God, we're meant to see the mercy of God in pursuit of us. The mercy of God in pursuing us. Notice the contrast of Jonah's disobedience to what we read back in verse 4. But the Lord. In contrast to everything that we just read, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, rise and go. He rises to flee, gets on a ship, but the Lord. In contrast to all of that, there's something else that is going to be said. Unless we just read through the story because it is so familiar, let's stop to remind ourselves that the staggering thought here is that it could have ended right here. God could have just let Jonah go. God could have justly and understandably written Jonah off, found another prophet, moved on, but he doesn't. Jonah rose to flee, but the Lord pursued. And the remainder of the chapter, it just simply serves to show us the examples of God's mercy as he pursues Jonah in his running. Notice, first of all, that God sent a storm. We see this in verses 4 and 5. God sent a storm. And we're told it wasn't just any blustery day. This was a mighty tempest. The ship itself is threatened to break up. And the storm is of such ferocity that even these experienced mariners who probably made this trek hundreds of times, they are fearing for their lives. Uh, we're told in verse 4 that this storm was brought about, lest we are ignorant here, it was brought about by the Lord himself. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. So what we're meant to understand is this is not just any storm. Don't just read this as the laws of nature. We are meant to understand that what is behind these forces of nature is the very hand of God. The Lord sent a storm. This storm was sent as an intervention. It was meant to impede, it was meant to arrest a fleeing prophet. And so all of this serves to remind us that God's wayward and disobedient children can inspect, expect intervention from a loving God. But the all-important question is, why? Why does God send the storm? Why does he hurl a great wind upon the water that would cause these men to fear their lives? Did God send this storm to judge? Did God send this storm to crush Jonah? To condemn Jonah? Let's let the words of Hebrews 12 ring in our ears. And you've forgotten the exhortation have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? God sent the storm because God loves Jonah. That's what we must see. And our Heavenly Father is going to always use loving wisdom in the way that he confronts us in our rebellion, in our foolishness, in our hard-heartedness. For Jonah, this just happened to be the Lord hurling a great storm upon the sea. Other times, God may hurl job loss. He may hurl illness. Could be a blown transmission at the worst point of the month. It could just even be the, the sickness of soul. I think this is important. Listen to David's testimony of his unrepentant sin that we're given in Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silent, meaning I did not confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. David recognizes when I kept silent, your hand was heavy upon me, and that hand, it dried me up. It was a sickness of soul. I don't know what's wrong with me, that something is off, and I, I, can't, I can't go on. The Second London Confession in uh, the chapter on justification, it, it helpfully unpacks this teaching of Scripture. It says that God continues to forgive the sins of those who are justified, even though they can never fall from their state of justification, they may fall under God's fatherly displeasure because of their sins. Listen to this. In that condition, they will not usually have the light of his face restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, plead for pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. That's Psalm 32. Your hand was heavy upon me. I don't have the sense of the smile of God upon me. I have the sense of his hand upon me. Have you not forgotten that the Lord speaks to you as sons, whom the Lord loves? He disciplines. Christian, do you know what this means? This means that you will never succeed in running from God because he excels in endurance and patience. You will never win. He will always win. As a child of God, he will always pursue and overtake you. And so this is the very evidence, and the very reminder that we should not misinterpret the discipline of God as just callous judgment, but it is loving mercy. It is God's tender care. It's the very evidence that he is running after us. And this is the very reason that a faithful and loving church will pursue an unrepentant church member through the means of, of church discipline. Church discipline is the most loving. It is the most gracious thing a body of believers can do for a Christian that refuses to repent of their sin. Putting him or her outside the membership and withholding the covenant meal of, of the Lord's Supper from them is to serve as that deterrent, as that storm that would waken them up and intend, intend to, to cause them to see 
What am I doing? This is foolish. How could I ever think that I could run from God? Look how merciful he's been to me. It's meant to provoke repentance. God sent a storm. But notice also in verses 6, really the bulk of the narrative, down through 16, God also sent pagan sailors. In his providence, God ensured that this ship was filled with a crew of polytheistic pagan mariners. And as they call out to their myriad of, of supposed gods, they call out to Jonah, do the same. We're not really sure whose god has the upper hand here at the moment. The storm is bad. Can you call out to your god? Perhaps your god has jurisdiction here, and we can end this thing. That's the kind of ship that Jonah's on. Because Yahweh controls every event, even the casting of the lot into the lap, Proverbs 16, 33. Well, look what happens. The spotlight falls right on Jonah, exposing him as the reason for this storm that this ship is in. And notice how their questions force Jonah really to reckon with his true identity. What do they ask him? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What people are you? And what's Jonah say? Look down at verse 9. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. How bitter those words must have tasted as they came out of Jonah's mouth. Who am I, you ask? I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord. You're the very Lord who made this sea and the dry land. And then there's this added sting when Jonah has to verbalize this to a bunch of polytheistic pagans that he actually worships the true and the living God. You're calling out to all these gods, but I worship the real God. That's who I serve. That's who I worship. I worship the God who creates the sea that you fear right now. And the land that we're trying to get to, he made all of that. That's, that's the God that I worship and that I serve. They don't know this God, but, but Jonah does, and he is running from this God. But even in this, God is mercifully confronting Jonah with the reality of who God is and who Jonah is. God sends these pagan sailors to awaken Jonah to the soberness and the reality of the situation. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get here? Well, if I answer those questions, I've got to talk about my God and who he is. God pursued Jonah by putting him on a ship with a bunch of pagan sailors. Have you ever gone throughout your day, well into your day, and you pass by your reflection, and suddenly you pull back and say, oh my, how long has that looked like this? How long has that been there or untucked like that? And you begin to think of all the places that you've been or the people that you've seen. You were completely unaware until you saw that reflection and saw yourself as you really are. These pagan sailors are the mirror, the reflection that God sent to put right in front of Jonah and to say, this is who you are. You worship Yahweh, the one who created the seas and the dry land. Have you forgotten? Jonah had to verbalize that to these same men. God pursued Jonah. He sent a storm. He sent sailors. 
And then in verse 17, what did he send? He sent a great fish. Jonah knew this storm is because of me, and the lives of these men are in danger because of me. He knew that his disobedience brought this about, that he deserved to die, not them. And so Jonah concludes, it'd be better to be thrown overboard than to have to endure this storm. But yet again, right here, this story takes another unexpected turn. And that instead of Jonah sinking down to the bottom of the sea, everything goes black and the credits roll. What we see is that God continues to pursue Jonah. Jonah runs from God. God runs after Jonah, and this time he uses a great fish. We'll leave the great fish and Jonah's prayer for another time, but in case you've not read the entirety of the account, let me tell you, the fish is a rescue boat, not a coffin. The fish is a mercy, not judgment. God sent the great fish not to destroy Jonah, but to deliver him. How ironic that in that moment, if you're Jonah, you're thinking, this is it. This is how it all ends. In that moment, you are thinking, this is tragedy. But in the actual narrative, no, this is mercy. So let me ask you, perhaps the very events that are in your life right now that you are labeling with your label maker as tragedy, is it possible that God has sent those saying mercy this is God's mercy for you. This is not tragedy at all. This is one of those inescapable truths that runs throughout the entire chapter. God pursues sinners. He runs after rebels. This account of Jonah paints this vivid picture with all of its irony, with all of its unforeseen plot twists, that in our sin, we run from God, but God is committed to running after sinners. Just ask Jonah. If you can hear the sound of my voice this morning, having heard the testimony of God's word, it is not too late for you. The grace of God, the mercy of God, is extended to sinners. Jonah testifies of that fact, that this is the God that we worship this morning. There's a greater testimony than Jonah that bears witness to the same wonderful truth, though. This account, all the elements of it, does it sound familiar in any way to you? We've got men on a boat, fearing for their lives, in the midst of a storm. There's a great prophet among them, but he's sleeping. It ought to sound like an echo of, of another account in Scripture. I believe this account here in Jonah chapter 1 is intended to propel us forward to the Gospels, particularly Mark's Gospel, Mark's account in the New Testament. Listen to Mark chapter 4 and what we're told of our Lord there. On that day when evening had come, he, Christ, said to them, let us cross over to the other side. And leaving the crowd... They took him with them into the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with them. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep 
on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I would say something greater than Jonah has come, just as Christ himself would testify. What do I mean by that? Jonah, a mere man, slept in a boat to escape the will of God. Jesus, the Son of Man, slept in a boat, resting peacefully in the will of his Father. You see, Jesus was the faithful prophet who responded to the call of the Father to go to the rebellious people and proclaim the message of repentance. Jesus did what Jonah would not do nor could do. See, this is what we refer to as Christ's prophetic office. How he is our great prophet. And what the scriptures mean by that is we need him to be our prophet because of our great ignorance. In light of all of our ignorance, we need Christ to come and to speak to us. And Christ has come and he has done this. If you're familiar with the Baptist Catechism, question 27 says, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? Answer, Christ executes the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. What Jonah could not do, what Jonah would not do, Christ has done. Jesus is the faithful and obedient prophet who comes, sent by the Father, to illuminate our darkness by revealing to us who God is and who we are. And in showing us the Father, what he does is he shows us all of God's holiness. Christ fully exposes the presence of all of our sin. He does not pull punches. He does not pull back. He says, this is the reality. This is who you are. This is who the Father is. And this is who I am. And this is why I have come. See, Christ is the faithful prophet who calls out sinners and he testifies that he is the only mediator between God and man. That means is that we cannot wash away our guilt just by ignoring it or saying it's not as bad as that person. Nor can we wipe it from us with our, our rags of self-righteousness. The stain does not remove. He is the only sacrifice who is able to atone for the sins of his people. He is the only one who is able to cleanse a guilty conscience. He is the only one who is able to give sufficient assurance that says, you are beloved and you are accepted because of my death for your rebellion and my resurrection from your grave, which says, you are welcome. You are beloved. The same Christ is present here this morning. He calls out to you and he pleads with you by his same word, by his same spirit. And he says, I pursue sinners in their sin. What will you do with that message? What will you do with that wonderful announcement? This is the love of God for sinners that's shown to us in Christ. This is the same sort of love that causes us to rise up and sing and rejoice and come to another Lord's Day and rest in the promise that is given to us. That it's not by my works of righteousness, but it's by Christ and his faithful work for me. This is the same sort of announcement that would cause us to sing. Maybe you're familiar with this hymn that maybe Jonah could have written. When I was sinking down, 
sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul, for my soul. Christ has laid aside his crown for my soul. Father, we look to you this morning and we rejoice in the good news that you have given to us in your word. We rejoice that you have proclaimed loudly and boldly that you pursue sinners in their sin. We thank you for the mercy that is extended to us in your son. Lord, we pray that you would cause that mercy to soften our hearts, to bend our wills, and to raise our affections as high as they possibly could be raised in the adoration of your son. Do this, we pray, by the work of your spirit, for the strengthening of your church and for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.